But as we're making our way back to our seats, please open the Word of God to Genesis chapter 43. We'll continue to study together. We'll continue to read and uh, learn from the truths of God's Word to us. In Genesis 43, I see some people that uh, have not been here in a little little while. They've been on the mission field. So I see you back there. Yep. Hi. Good morning. And uh, they're probably, they're looking at me like, what, we're still in Genesis? (laughs) Genesis 43, let's begin reading in verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? (laughs) They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man." May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? 
They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and they were merry with him. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you have preserved it and you have allowed us to translate it into our language. God, I pray that as we study together that you would be glorified. Lord, that these words uh, would be real to us. Lord, that they would not be a story. Uh, God, that these would be words that we take into our minds and, and implant into our hearts. Lord, this word that is able to save our souls. We thank you for Jesus, for his work. We thank you for the spirit and his work now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently, research was done to find out what Americans believe about God. And the first important finding, they found that about 90% of people in America believe in a higher power of some type, but about 80% of people in America said they believe in God versus no God or even no higher power. Just 80% believe in God, and that, that seems kind of encouraging until we Look at the second part of the question, the follow-up question. Do you believe in God as described in the Bible? And to that, only about 56% of Americans say that they believe in God as described in the Bible. Almost one out of every two people in America does not believe in God as described in the Bible. So if we're looking for a mission field, how about every other person we run into, <laughs> right? But here's where it gets really concerning, because then they said during the survey, well, let's talk, about those, uh, let's talk to those who say that they're Christians. They, they profess to be Christians. Do you believe in God as described in the Bible? And about 80% said yes. You'd think that would be a little bit higher. But then they said, well, let's define a little bit more concretely what do we mean by God as defined by the Bible? And they picked three attributes, omniscience, all-knowing, omnipotence, all-powerful, and uh, omnibenevolence, all-loving, is God all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving. Christians, those who profess to be Christians, about 75% then said, yes, I believe in that God, the God described the Bible that way. So that means, statistically speaking, if everyone in this room said that they were a Christian, and, and this was true of, of us statistically, then one out of every four people sitting in this room would not agree that God is God as described in the Bible, all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving. And that's just those three attributes. There's so much more about God. Who do people think God is, though, if not the one that is described in the Bible? We've been studying this God of the Bible, and, and what we've been looking at is God's sovereignty, His wisdom, and His goodness. That's how He defines Himself 
in his word, in the Bible. And he gets to define himself, right? God gets to tell us who he is. It's not up to me to tell you or, or for me to figure out for myself who God is. God gets to tell us. And he has told all of us right here in his word. But how many of us know what God is like? And how many of us could tell others who he is? How much do we really know of him? And more personally speaking, how much of what we say that we know about God, and we can rattle off different things about him and different truths, but how much of those, when the rubber meets the road, do we actually believe in our life? Because we can say we believe that God is powerful, and we can say we believe he's all wise and all knowing. We can say that he's all loving, but when we look at our life, do we live that way in our decisions and our words and our actions? Does that belief come out? And affect us. That's what jumps off the page here in chapter 43 of Genesis. What's known about God and then what's actually believed about God. And we'll consider that as we walk through this chapter. So there are four parts that we'll look at. And the first part, number one, is that Judah convinces Jacob to return to Egypt. Verses 1 through 10. In this first part, Judah is going to convince Jacob. Now, in chapter 42, it said that 10 of Jacob's sons went to Egypt to buy food. Only nine came back. They survived for a little bit of time on that food. But as verse 1 reminds us of what God had said earlier, this famine's going to be severe. It has been. And so in verse 2, they've gone through all the food. So Jacob says, hey, guys, it's about time to head back down to Egypt to get some more food. Don't you think? Judah speaks up and says, nope. <laughs> nope. No way. Verses 3 to 5, he says, the man solemnly warned us, don't come back without your brother. Now, maybe Jacob forgot about that, or maybe he had hoped that they'd forgotten. But Judah says, them's the facts, right? (laughs) He reminds Jacob. Now, Jacob knows who God is, right? We've seen Jacob in his life know who God is. He's encountered him before. He's worshiped him. He does believe him. But right here in this verse is going to be a clue where Jacob's heart is currently because we're not as faithful as God is. Verse 6, Israel, this is Jacob, says, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? Now, if you remember from last week, chapter 42, verse 36, this isn't new for Jacob. This is, this is where he's kind of been stuck for a while, thinking about himself. Even though it's been enough time for them to go through all the food they brought back, Jacob's still thinking about himself more than the Lord. Now, I wanted to take a minute because it's really easy to throw, Jake, throw stones at Jacob for this, but I've never even come close to encountering what Jacob has encountered here where he thinks that he's lost one son. He's, he thinks that he's now lost a second son. I mean, he, he thinks Joseph's gone. He thinks that Simeon's now gone. And now he's being faced with the possibility that he's going to lose a third son. What, what, what would I be like in in that place that Jacob is in right now. Would I be that shining example of strength of faith, faith and trust? Yeah, I'd like to think so. I, I pray and hope that I would be, but I've got to be honest. I've faced many lighter problems than this and been more like Jacob is right now than that shining strength example of faith. Jacob's not talking a lot about God right now in his life, and, and we can identify with that. So often in our lives, we're not thinking about God and trusting our Lord, the sovereign, good, wise God. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't excuse Jacob. It doesn't excuse us either. 
but maybe it helps us not skim over just how strong our faith should be, how much it should be growing daily in the Lord, because we get a little bit content with where we are. Often we get a little bit satisfied. You know, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm, I'm doing these things. I'm checking these boxes. You know, I'm doing all right. But what happens is the more that we get content with where we are, the more we get content with what's here, the more we get content with what we're doing, the less content we get, the less satisfied we become in our Lord. That, that starts to replace. The, the less content we are with what's here, the more contentment we find in our Lord the more satisfaction, the more love we have for him. So notice in verse 7, the other brothers join in with Judah. It says, verse 7, they replied. Now it's not just Judah, the brothers are talking. And they're like, look, these questions were weirdly specific. (laughs) We don't understand, like, who would ask these specific questions? And and they applied directly to us. We just answered him. How how are we supposed to know he was going to tell us to bring Benjamin? Their answer, in effect, was, you know, Dad, it doesn't always have to be about you, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not always just about you. We learned last week, brothers and sisters, that events don't happen against us, right? God is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of God's control, outside of His hand. And if God is for us, believers, then the events that are happening are for us, for our benefit, for our good, Romans tells us, Paul tells us in Romans. Events don't happen against us, but for our good. Do we believe that? Or would we rather believe what, becomes, what comes easier to us, what comes more naturally to us? Why is this happening to me? Why does this always happen to me? Why does this stuff have to happen? I fell into that trap this week. After telling all of you and myself, don't do that, the baby is fussy. We haven't slept well. We've got to get the taxes done. We've got a wedding we're trying to plan. We've got these deadlines. We've got these things. To do. And I, oh, I was just, why is all this happening? And then I stopped myself. <laughs> We've got to stop that thinking in its tracks. You can't always control the thoughts and the feelings that are coming into your mind, but you can figure out what to do with them. You can control what to do with those thoughts, with those feelings that come from your flesh, that come from the world, that come from Satan, our enemy. You take those thoughts and you stop them right there and you replace them with right thoughts of who God is. How he's working in them. He's bringing them to us. He's, he's sovereign. He's in control. He's wise. He's good. He's loving. And then prepare for your flesh to reject it, to resist it. That's not, that's not going to work. That's not going to fix anything. not supposed to fix anything. (laughs) It's the truth. And so we rest in him. We trust in the Lord who's doing all of this for our good and for his glory. So interesting, we don't see the particular questions that they're talking about. When we looked at when these brothers met Joseph in chapter 42, we don't see the questions themselves, um, but it's to save space at that point. It was to not get a distraction. Um, Later on in chapter 44, Judah's going to speak to Joseph and tell him the same questions. Like, you said this, and Joseph's not going to argue with them. So even though we didn't see these questions originally, they were there, they happened. It just didn't include all of those words, so there's no contradiction. The brothers aren't lying, just in case there was any question. But Judah speaks up again in verse 8. He says, look, I'm going to convince, it's time to convince Jacob to send Benjamin. And his convincing argument has three parts. One, we can't go without Benjamin, but if we don't go, we're all going to die. Right? The famine is so severe. You and me and all of our little ones 
we've got to go. But we can't go without Benjamin. The second part, I myself will be a pledge for his safety. The third part, the Egyptian man is already going to be suspicious because we've taken so long to come back. So we've got to go, and we've got to go now. The word pledge there is surety, security, guarantee. I guarantee with my own life that he'll return. I'll be responsible for him. <laughs> it was better than Reuben's suggestion, right? Kill my two sons. Kill your grandsons if I don't bring him back. That, that was a horrible plan. But Judah has changed from the man that he was in chapter 38. You remember back there that, that he, he, he had gone away from the family. He had run away from all of the responsibility and all of the care and all of the things he was supposed to be doing. He had gone to try to just, well, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to live my own way, do things my way. Turned out to be a big mess for him. Here, he's offered to become a secret service bodyguard for Benjamin, right? I will guarantee his safety. Judah says, look, it's time to take some personal responsibility for our lives. We can't just sit around here singing, Jesus, take the wheel. We've got to, God works through means, right? God is in control, but he's in control of the means. And the means that he's providing through a, a, to us right now is not the way that we prefer. We, we want to be able to grow our own food, and, and he blesses all that work, and then, and then we're able to eat it. But right now, he's given us money. He's given the Egyptians food. And the Egyptians are willing to part with the food for some money. It's still God providing. So we need to take personal responsibility for our lives and for the lives of others. Judah says, it's time for me to take responsibility for the life of my brother. And men, this is important in our culture. Because so often, so many times, in so many ways, men in our culture are marginalized. They're pushed to the side. They're feminized. They're infantilized. <laughs> You're just an overgrown child. Get out of the way. They've encouraged to be softer, less involved. They're encouraged to just sit. Don't worry about the children. The women will do a better job caring for the children. Don't worry about caring for anybody else. Other people can do that. Just do your job, come home, relax, and go back and do your job. Instead of men taking responsibility in our homes, in the church, in the world. Many women are doing a great job and many men are not, but there are also many men who are. <laughs> and so we're grateful for that and we praise God for that. But in our culture, it's a danger. It's a, it's a temptation for men just to fall in line with what the world tells us to do. Just get out of the way. No, it's, it's time, Judah says, to take personal responsibility. Be here. Take responsibility. Take charge and love and serve. Well, this is a big change for Judah. So remember, we're trying to get our minds and hearts heavenly-minded, but not so that we can't be of any earthly good, but so that we can be of immense earthly good because of our love for our God, our Savior. So Jacob is convinced it's time to go. The second part here, verses 11 to 14, Jacob sends his 10 sons. If you're in here in Canyon Kids and you're, you've got your outline, that, je, that, blank, that blank there is Jacob, just in case you had uh, started doodling on the side. Jacob sends his 10 sons. He's got 12, two are already in Egypt. It's time for the 10 to go, this time including Benjamin. But if it must be so, Jacob says, bring a gift, take twice as much money, and take Benjamin. The gift had a little bit of balm and honey and gum and myrrh and pistachio nuts and almonds. It's a small amount of, of each of them. Why? Well, because there's a famine. They're common gifts for the time. They're useful gifts, the balm, the gum, the, the myrrh. 
As for honey, well, Egypt had honey, but we know that honey from different places is, is different. It tastes different. It looks different. But there's actually debate here about this word here, meaning some grapes that had been crushed and cooked down and, and concentrated. So it was more like a jelly for bread, or you add water to it and drink it. So that's the, the, maybe the honey it's talking about here. But the, the point is, he's sending these gifts down to Egypt, pistachios and nuts. My question as I read about this was, wait, there's a famine. So how do they have all this food? <laughs> the honey and the, the pistachio and, and the almonds. Well, two parts to that question, uh, to answer that question. Number one, it's not a lot of any of it. He says, bring a little, bring a little of it. But secondly, it's possible to not only to grow these, but also to preserve them. Now, almonds need a lot of water to grow. But when stored properly, I found that almonds can last over two years. And we're going to find out in the next chapter that we're only two years into the famine. So they've got some almonds on hand. Pistachios require half as much or a third as much water as almonds do to grow. So it's possible to have them at this point. So hopefully that helps set our minds at ease. Okay, this is, this is not made up. This is Scripture. This is the Word of God, and it's true, and it's real. But Jacob sends them down as a gift through his sons, rather than just what he's living on, because you can only, need, you can only eat Honey Nut Cheerios for so long, right? Especially without milk. <laughs> You've got to have other food. So it's a gift. Let's appease the angry ruler man in Egypt as they see him. He says, bring twice the money. It must have been an accident. It must have been a mistake somebody made to put the money back in. So bring that. Bring all the money that you need to buy some more food. And then the hardest part to think of, he says, oh yeah, and bring Benjamin too. That's the last one listed. Because Jacob is now at the end of himself. He's at the end of his resources. He can't do anything. He says, as he says previously in his life, I've got to turn to God. Verse 14, may God Almighty grant you mercy. We finally see Jacob's thoughts return to the Lord, away from himself and on to God, God Almighty. He remembers suddenly that he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is strong enough to protect Benjamin and the rest of you. He's still primarily concerned with Benjamin. He says, you know, may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. <laughs> he's talking about Simeon. But he's calling on the all-powerful God to bring them back. Th th this all-powerful God, he says, may he have mercy. May he grant you mercy, uh, pity, compassion. The man has shown no propensity for compassion to this point. There's, there's nothing in this man that says he's just going to be this way, but God Almighty can work in this man's heart and make him compassionate, make him merciful because nothing is impossible with God. Now watch this. What we see in Jacob with this remembrance, that little bit of recalling God's power to work in a human heart. Here's what happens to Jacob. His words change. The words that come out of his heart change. You remember when the idea of Benjamin going down to Egypt before in chapter 42, he said, if something happens to him, I'm just going to fall over dead, right? He said, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to shale. You know, if something happened to him, I'm just going to die. But look, after he has said, may God Almighty grant you mercy, that remembering of God he says, to be if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Bereaved means deprived of a loved one. That, that's what the word itself means. He, he, he's going to be uh, saddened because of the loss, particularly the Hebrew word here, it means the loss of a child, 
I will be saddened. And, and it's, it's, it's such a deep loss. It's such a profound, deep sorrow and loss that it needs its own word to describe it. That, that's this word bereaved. Jacob acknowledges he's going to be saddened all over again. But instead of saying, I'll just fall over dead, he says, I'm going to be sad, but I'm going to keep on in life. I'll be sad in life, but I'm going to keep on. This little bit amount of recalling who God is has changed him enough from inevitable death to extreme sadness. What he knows and believes about God finally changes his actions and words. So I want to encourage you, brother and sister, that even as we will have pain and sorrow, even as there will be difficulties, even as we will struggle in profound ways because of things happening and things that don't happen, that's not sinful. That's not wrong for us to struggle. We're not impervious to pain, right? We recognize it's real, but what we do with it, how we deal with it, is going to be controlled with what we believe about God first and foremost. What we believe about God, it changes our, what we believe about ourselves. It changes what we believe about this world and what's happening to us and why. But what we believe about our Lord God, first and foremost, controls our thinking and our beliefs about every day, the successes, the difficulties, and everything that happens. When it gets bad, how often, brother and sister, how often do you wait to turn to the Lord? <laughs> we forget about God. You know, we say, things, well, I know God's powerful, but <laughs> I know God is all wise. He knows what's happening, but I don't have enough evidence yet to believe. You know, what we're telling him, basically, essentially at a, at a ground level is, you know, I, God, I know that you've said you're good, and I know that you know what's going on, but I don't quite believe it. I need more proof. Your word isn't enough. Your track record over the entire course of human history hasn't been enough to this point. I need it right now. What we know of God and what we really believe about God starts to come through, Right? I believe the reason that we wait to turn to the Lord in trouble is because we've gotten away from the Lord when it wasn't that bad, when there wasn't trouble. We wouldn't have to turn to the Lord in trouble if we hadn't turned from Him already when there wasn't trouble. And because we've gone so long away from the Lord, it doesn't occur to us right away to turn back to Him. It's only when it gets so bad that we're at the end of ourselves that we remember, oh, God... He's still good. So it's important for us to get to know who God is all of the time, to think about God, to think about God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, all the time, not just in times when we're struggling and not just in time of difficulty. Jacob does what we do. He remembers only after some time. But even late is not too late. God is still God. He is still good. So, the brothers head to Egypt. Number three, verses 15 to 25, Joseph's brothers arrive. Joseph's brothers arrive. They get there. Verse 16, Joseph sees them. He sees Benjamin. He says to his servant, get them into the house, slaughter an animal. We're having a big lunch banquet. Now, we're not going to talk about that too much because we're getting closer to lunchtime. <laughs> but the reason that's called out is because the Egyptians didn't eat a lot of meat because animals were sacred to them. They didn't eat a lot of meat. So it would have been something that these men recognized and appreciated. Oh, there's an animal being slaughtered. There's a celebration about to happen. And they don't know why. They don't know what is going on. 
It's also important because the Egyptians generally had their big meal in the middle of the day, at noon. The Israel usually had theirs in the evening. So, so there's uncertainty on both sides. The Egyptians, the Hebrews, you know, what, what, what's Joseph doing here? What's happening? But look at the brothers' reaction in verse 18. The men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. Why would they be afraid? They're coming for a banquet, for, for, a, for a celebration. It's that guilty conscience again. Verse 18, they said, it's because of the money, which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in. So he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. They must have thought they had some really amazing donkeys, right? (laughs) He's going to take them from us. He's going to attack us, bind us, make us servants, and going to take with us the only thing we have. Now listen, what they've just done is they've described what they did to Joseph. They attacked him, they bound him, they made him a servant, they took from him the only thing he had, his father's coat. They actually start to think that Joseph is just like them. In the face of the one who's blessing them, they think they're being set up the same way that they did to Joseph. And they slander his character. They don't even know who this man is, but they're slandering him based on their own character. They're saying, it's a trap. Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. That's what these brothers keep saying to themselves. Our sin has found us out. Our sin has found us out. That's what they're thinking. But it's the Lord working in them. He's working in their hearts. Even though there's this banquet meal that's going to happen, it's a big blessing. All they can think about is, I'm sinful. We're sinful. We've sinned. We've got this problem. So before they even go inside, verse 19 says, they meet the servant at the door of the house. (laughs) Like, hey, before we even go inside, you've got to know something. Unprovoked, no questions. There's not even an accusation here. They're they're saying, look, we've got to tell you. (laughs) And they're probably all talking at once, just stuttering all the way through this story. We we found our money. Look, we didn't mean to. We just, we found the money. It was in the sacks and it was, you know, they're talking over each other. They're stuttering and they're going 100 miles an hour. We have no idea how it got there. Listen to the servant, the steward of the house. Verse 23, peace to you. Shalom lachem, peace, wellness, soundness, health. You're not in danger. Do not be afraid. Calm down, there's no reason for you to be so fearful. Why not? Your God and the God of your father has been working. You know, he says, why are you in such a state of fear? Don't you have a God? Don't you have a God who's with you? Isn't he, isn't he a powerful God? Don't you believe in him? He's the eternal lasting God. He was the God of your father. He's still your God, so he's been around for a while. He's faithful. Haven't you thought of your God? <laughs> Don't you believe in him? Here's what he's done. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Now, why does he say it like that? What does that mean? The servant doesn't say, God put your money in your sacks. He says, the the word he uses is treasure, specifically buried treasure. He put buried treasure in your sacks. In other words, yes, you paid in full. I received your money, but God placed uh, buried hidden treasure in your sacks, in your bags. Now, we want to be careful that we don't kind of over-interpret, over-analyze this and, and what this says. It could just mean, yep, I had your money and I put it back in there. It could just mean that. But because the way he says this, I wonder if he wasn't instructed by Joseph to answer this way. The treasure that you have to dig out, that you have to mine out, the treasure that God placed in your bags is this work that he's doing in your hearts. 
this work that is, is, is happening that's coming out as fear because of your sin, that's God's treasure. That, that's real treasure that you see sin and you're trying to work through it. The real treasure is not the money. Remember they had sold Joseph for money? There were, there were 10 of them in on that and they each got only about two shekels apiece. Now they've got enough money to buy food for their entire family twice over. They've got twice the money and they want nothing to do with it. Just take all of the money. Take all of it that we have. We just need some food. It's more important to them now to preserve their families than to get more money. It's God's work happening in their hearts and it's coming out through their actions and through their words. They're still not sure what's happening so the steward brings out Simeon to them and they're still unsure what's happening. There's no celebration. There's no happiness. The steward brings out water. Oh, here it comes. What's he going to do with it? Oh, oh, we wash our feet with it. It's hospitality. He's going out to the donkeys. He must be taking them. No, he's feeding them. <laughs> rather than attack them, rather than being rejected and, and, and attacked and arrested, they're being cared for. They're being respected. So often what we fear is going to happen doesn't happen. But whether, or does, whether it does or not, are we trusting the Lord? Are we believing in Him? Are we dealing with our sin? And are we trusting in the Lord? These brothers are, are, are going through some pressure situations, and, and they're, they're recognizing a lot of sin within themselves, but what are they going to do about it? It's time for Joseph to come home. Number four, the last part of this chapter, verses 26 to 34, Joseph meets with his brothers. Joseph comes home. They get the gift ready. Joseph comes home. They give it to him in verse 26, and that's the last we hear of it. <laughs> that gift that was so carefully prepared and, and brought down, and it's presented, and okay, that's nice. Let's get on with the real stuff, right? <laughs> that's what Joseph says. Again, they fulfill the dreams of God that he gave to Joseph long ago. His brothers are here bowing to the ground. What's on Joseph's mind? How's your father? Is he still alive? How's, he, it really, it's how's our father, but he's asking them, how's your father? Now, you remember in those dreams that it wasn't just, it wasn't just the brothers, it was the mother and father, the, the sun and the moon and the stars that were bowing to Joseph. And we haven't seen his father and mother do that. His mother's gone. His father isn't there in Egypt. But look at verse 28. They reply, your servant, our father is well, he is still alive. They bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Their father and their mother is represented by them being there, bowing before him. So even though they couldn't be there physically, this, it's happening. The dream again is being fulfilled while they're bowing down to Joseph. As this happens, Joseph catches sight of Benjamin. Is this your younger brother? And he knows it is, so he, he doesn't even wait for the answer. He, he says, God be gracious to you, my son. He calls him my son because of his love for him, his care for him, his position of power. He, he can care about him. But he calls on God to be gracious, merciful, kind, benevolent. Benjamin. Now, that would have sounded very strange to the Egyptians. Why? Why should a God be kind or gracious to Benjamin? What has he done? For the Egyptians, God, if you want, if you want a God to be gracious to you, you've you got to do something. You know, you've got to be making some offerings, and you've got to be committed daily to sacrificing things. You, you've got to go to his festival and, or, or her festival, and, and you've got to make these sacrifices. You've got to be committed to this God for this God to be nice to you. What's he done? Joseph calls upon God to be gracious to Benjamin without any reason for it. 
It can only be because God is gracious. But not only is the true God gracious, remember He's powerful, and that's made obvious to us. If we were reading this in Hebrew, we would remember back to verse 14 when Jacob was praying and asking God Almighty to grant them mercy. That word mercy is the same word for compassion that we see here in verse 30. He he, he grew in compassion for his brother, and then he runs out of the room because he can't handle it anymore. It's the same word there that's used. God is answering Jacob's prayer right here, even though it's Joseph the whole time. It's God who works in Joseph's heart as the God of compassion, the God of mercy. And Joseph is overcome by it, so he, he leaves, and he just weeps. And he's got to leave because leaders like this in Egypt can't cry in public. It's, too, it's weak, and people will start coming after him. They sense weakness, and they'll, they'll come after him. But he's got, he's got work to do. He's got God's work to do. So he washes his face, cleans himself up, comes back. Verse 31, he says, serve the food. And here comes the crucial test for the brothers in this chapter. Here comes the crucial test. There's another one coming in, verse four, in chapter 44. But here they sit, according to Egyptian custom, Joseph as the leader governor. He's above the common class of people, so he sits by himself. Regular class of Egyptians, they sit by themselves, and Hebrews by themselves, because they can't eat together. It's an abomination to them. That, that's all expected. That's okay. But what's unexpected is the 11 brothers are now seated in order of their birth. Now, that's easy when you've got a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old, and they're stair-stepping down, right? Joseph is the second youngest, and he's 39 years old at this point. All the other brothers are older than that, so when you get a little bit older than 39, it starts to become a little bit, old, uh, a little bit harder to tell who's older than who. So it can't just be dumb luck. They're looking at all this, and it says, verse 33, they look at each other in amazement. How does this guy know this stuff? How does he know that we're all in this order, that we sit in this order of our birth? He knew about our father. He asked about our brother Benjamin. He remembered us. He remembered our whole story after the thousands of people that he sees all the time. And now he seated us according to our birth order. Without coming out and telling them, Joseph is telling them, I'm, I'm your brother. I know all about you. And he's even continuing what happens back home, the favoritism of Benjamin. There he goes again. I mean, he just got blessed by this man. God be gracious to you? He didn't talk to us that way, right? He spoke so harshly back at us back in chapter 42. He's, now he's giving us hospitality. He's, you know, we've washed our feet. We're eating a banquet. He's taking care of our donkeys instead of taking them. He, he's blessing Benjamin. You know, Benjamin's got to be looking around at these guys and saying, what are you guys talking about? This guy's cool. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with this guy. The final verse, verse 34, portions were taken from Joseph's table. That's where they come from. They trickle down into the other tables. Everybody gets some food. Remember, this is a famine. Hundreds of thousands of people across the known world at this point are starving. These men get to have a banquet in here by God's grace. But again, Benjamin gets special treatment. He gets five times as much as the rest of them. This is the point. This is is what Joseph is after. If these brothers are harboring hatred in their hearts, they've seen the favoritism to Benjamin. And what was happening before when Joseph was the favorite was they hated him, they hated him even more, and then they became jealous of him, and then they started scheming, coming up with plans. Benjamin here is getting favored. 
if they've got that hatred that grows and, and hates even more and starts to become jealous, it's going to come out here as Benjamin gets all of this attention, all of this blessing above theirs. It's going to come out. But nothing comes from the brothers. We don't see animosity. We don't see jealousy. We don't see hatred. Joseph says maybe they, maybe they need a little nudge. Let's, let's push him a little bit. Alcohol is brought out. It says they drank and were merry with him. That word merry means intoxicated. If there are any inhibitions in them, you know, holding back, you've heard the Latin phrase, in vino veritas, in wine is truth, right? Because alcohol loosens lips. It makes you say things you wouldn't say and do things you wouldn't do. It was all part of the test for where the brothers' hearts are. Are you hating your brother, Benjamin? Are you jealous of him because of all this special treatment that he gets at home and now here? Without any restraints there, there's no anger. There's no bitterness that comes out at Benjamin. They're just grateful that they're not being punished, <laughs> that they're not being made servants and their donkeys are being taken. It's part of the test. They got 20% of what Benjamin got, but they're satisfied. And that's the end of the account that we're going to be able to study today, but already you can see the work of God in these men's hearts. They're changed from what they were before. They're acting differently. They're, they're speaking differently. And again, one final test will come next week, but we've seen from this chapter different people, what they believe about God, what they know about God, and, and what they really believe coming out. Our God, the only real, true, faithful, living, almighty God, is the living God. He's not an idol. He's not imaginary. You can know Him. Brothers and sisters, we all do know Him. The Bible says everybody knows there is a God. Everybody really knows that God is God. Creation clearly reveals that. They just suppress that truth by their unrighteousness. But you and I can know God. We need to know Him more. What you know of God, what you truly believe about God influences everything you do in life and everything you say. When you look at what you've said and what you've done and what you don't do and what you should have said, you can trace that back in your heart to, well, did I really believe what God said? Do I really know what He said? We can have knowledge of God here in our mind that doesn't penetrate to our hearts. But we've got to start with that knowledge in our mind. We've got to learn who God is, learn His attributes, learn what it says about God. But we can't just leave it in our minds. It's got to penetrate into our heart or it's worthless. How, is, how important is it to know God? N not just for our every moment of life, but Jesus, as he was, before He left earth, in John 17, He prayed to His Father God. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. That's who Jesus is. He's got authority over all life. That to give eternal life to those God has given him, the Father has given him. Here's what Jesus says. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what Jesus said. That's why it's so important to know who God is. That's why it's so important to know who Jesus is because that's eternal life. That's, that's our life now and forever. Our, our eternal life depends on it. So our application is really simply know the Lord Jesus Christ and then know Him more <laughs> and then keep knowing Him more. Learn about Him. Learn from Him. We've got to learn about Him so that we can learn from Him, from His Word. Know Him and know Him more. Father God, we pray that. Lord, we pray that we would know you more. God, so many people in the world around us don't know you, and, and Lord, fewer and fewer people seem 
to know who you are. God, I pray that you would make us to know you, to love you, Father, to grow in our knowledge of you, to grow in our relationship with you, the true living God. Father, that the things that we know about you would not just become facts and, and statements and bullet points, God, but they would become what changes our hearts and our mind. God, that as we talk to people around us, they would hear a difference and see a difference, Lord, that, that because we believe in the true God, we're different. God, it's not because we want to be known as different. It's not because we, we want to be seen as, as, as wonderful in ourselves, but God, because you are wonderful in us. And God, they need to see that. They need to hear that. God, would you make us faithful? Lord, you are faithful. Father, we pray that you would grow our love for you, grow our knowledge of you. Lord, that as, as Peter told us, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, he is our all. Lord, we don't live like it. We don't think that way so often. But God, it's the truth. I pray, Lord, the truth would be real in each man and woman's heart in this room. For the children, for the youth. God, for every person in here, Lord, that Jesus Christ would not be the man in the storybooks. That he would not be the man in the paintings. He'd not be the, the man that's talked about in, in Sunday school and in, in, in church on Sundays, but God, that he would be the reason that we have hope. He would be our life now and forever. We praise you for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.